Welcome and thanks for listening to the Community Christian Church Podcast. To learn more about Community Christian Church, visit us online at cccsterling.org. Today's message comes from Sean Bono. Good morning, everybody. Yes, my name's Sean Bono. I am so happy to be here this morning. My wife, Kara, and I, we've been a part of CCC with our son, Davin, for the past four years, since 2014. And ever since we started, we, we got involved shortly thereafter with, with the youth, as Pastor Dan had mentioned. And so we've been with our students since they've been with, in ninth grade. And we're super excited for them because they're about to enter their senior year this upcoming fall into their graduate year. So we're very happy for them as well. And I'm also involved with the small group ministry here. I've uh, led a few small groups in the past. I'll be leading one up and coming in the fall. So look forward to that. And uh, the, the interim pastorship with the youth was incredible. I, I just want to thank the leadership here at the church for uh, granting me the opportunity to be able to serve in that capacity. It was a wonderful experience. And even though my full-time job during the week is being a business analyst for a staffing solutions company, my passion is teaching for the kingdom of God. And uh, even though I'm working full-time, I'm going to school, I believe the Lord's going to use me in whatever way he can, and I'm fully submitting to that. So I'm super honored to be able to assist with this month's sermon series. So I give thanks to Pastor Tony and the leadership here for that. Today we'll be exploring the parable on the cost of discipleship, which can be found in Luke chapter 14. And particularly, this is going to be verses 25 through 33. So if you like, you can actually start turning your Bible to that part. So Luke chapter 14. And it was funny because this was actually, this, ser- this sermon and this parable was not going to be the parable I was going to do at first. I was actually planning on doing a completely different parable, but through the course of how this sermon series was being planned out. It just so happened that the Holy Spirit drew me to this parable. And when I first started reading it over again, I asked the Lord, are you, are you sure, God? You know, because it's funny how we ask God if he's sure. Because yeah. <laughs> really, it's just us saying, I'm not ready. That's, but we say it, are you sure, God? Cause, but the Holy Spirit drew me back to this verse over and over and really eased me into the consideration of this verse, and what sort of started out as a bit of an uncertainty now has grown into almost like an excitement to what I'll be able to share with everybody today. So we'll be unpacking a little bit as we go. So we'll read a little bit of the parable and pause for comment before we get back into it. So if we could, we could actually go ahead and start reading, starting at verse 25. So this is Luke chapter 14, verse 25. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said... If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Now, if I could just pause right here for a moment. This is an extraordinarily controversial statement that Jesus says here. And perhaps this might be up there with some of the most controversial statements that he probably did say over the span of his ministry. And this is one of those moments that we pause in Scripture to see why Jesus said something so challenging to comprehend. And for folks new to the faith, this might actually appear almost a bit offensive, possibly. 
if it's their first time reading this piece of scripture. But I think if we dig in here a bit today, I think we'll come away from our conversation with a better understanding of what Jesus was trying to communicate here. And if I may, I'd like to propose that in order to be able to understand what's going on here in verse 26, that it actually would be beneficial for us to look at the next verse, verse 27, with it. And maybe as a side note now, it's probably a good moment to pause and say, generally speaking, that when we do read the Bible, it's really good to bring into consideration the verses surrounding what you're reading. And this is commonly referred to as analyzing the context of a verse. And so if we could, let's go ahead and read, we'll backtrack just one more verse. So we'll go back to 26 and we'll read 26 and 27 together. So Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Notice how there's that repetition there, cannot be my disciple. Once these two verses are read together, you can sort of see that verse 27 is actually providing clarification on verse 26. It's actually elaborating on verse 26. And each of these two verses, if you say them alone, they may not provide definitive guidance, right? If you, if you were to say, only say that you must take up your cross and follow Jesus, we might walk away from that conversation not really sure what you mean. It might sound a little bit vague. And then if you say, only say that you must hate father and mother, we might walk away thinking you're crazy or absolutely nuts thinking that we're trying to be negligent to our family. So you see, when we read these two verses together, they complement each other. They provide clarification to one another. And this is seen on occasion throughout Scripture. If you read the Bible, you're going to see when the same thing is said twice, but different words are used each time to either provide clarification or elaborate on a concept. And for example, and you don't have to turn to this in your Bibles, but in Genesis 17, when God and Abraham are talking to each other, God says to Abraham, I'll keep my covenant between me and you and your future offspring throughout their generations. That's sort of like part one of what God was saying. I'll keep my covenant between me and you and your future offspring throughout their generations. And then he goes on, as an everlasting covenant to be your God and the God of your offspring after you. So you, you can hear that repetition that takes place. Casual reading through the Bible, you're going to find a lot of examples like this. And if you're looking for a more local example here, then you need not turn any further than John chapter 6. And for those that know this verse, you know why another shockingly controversial statement when Jesus says in John 6, 56, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. You know, wow, that, that for sure is controversial. And that will for sure raise some eyebrows if you were to only say that verse. But as you know, for those who are familiar with this piece of scripture, he goes on for the next couple verses and unpacks what he means by that. He says, just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, and he sort of goes a little bit further. So you know, understand this is spiritual food he's talking about. It's not the literal eating of the flesh. So I just want to encourage those who are taking a deep dive into Scripture, perhaps maybe even for the first time, that if you come across an odd or striking verse, it becomes extremely beneficial to look around that verse to see if additional explanation can be found. So, so that's the immediate context of verse 26. If we were to maybe repeat that concept, and so we took the immediate context, let's take a step back and do maybe a, a greater context and see, well, what does the chapter tell us? Maybe another hint at helping us interpret here this verse 26. And in, if we could, just in that same chapter, 
Luke 14 here. So if we just look a little while back, sandwiched between his teaching on humility, which takes place in verses 7 through 11, and then in between the other part, on the other side, is the parable of the great dinner, which takes place in 15 to 24, are these three verses, verses 12, 13, and 14. And this is, in this quick bit of scripture, Jesus teaches on the concept of hospitality. So let's go ahead and read that. So verse 12, Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and so you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. In other words, he's essentially saying here that we shouldn't provide hospitality to somebody just because we'll get invited back to their house for a nice evening and a nice meal. No, instead, he challenges us and encourages us to minister to those who are unable to pay us back, to spend time with them, which in fact is to give our time to the Lord. By serving those who cannot pay us back instead of those who can, these things may look like we're hating family members when we do these things, but in reality, it's just us putting our first love first and that's Jesus. So we took an immediate context of verse 26. Then we took a little bit of a greater context. Now if we take another greater, greater context, we take another step back and maybe look at the entire gospel-wide picture of what Jesus says and some of the other things. Maybe one more example. Let's not forget the time in Matthew chapter 12 when Jesus is teaching to the crowds and one of his disciples says to Jesus, hey, your mother and brothers are waiting outside for you. And then Jesus says in response, this is Matthew chapter 12, verses 48 to 50, he says, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So when Jesus says in today's parable to hate father and mother, what he's saying here is that we must pick up our cross and follow him. And when we pick up our cross and follow him, what is actually is happening is that we're placing oneself in the company and servitude of those who are either locked in to do the will of God alongside us or are actively in the direct path of his will and his grace. He's trying to explain to us what the concept of grace and discipleship looks like here. So if we're to extend this concept, and if, say, our family members may not necessarily be working alongside of us in the kingdom of God and his work, it may appear to them that our interactions with our family members may seem like they're hateful, but that's because that's being judged by the world standards. And it's just that the distinction here is that instead of serving the world through a desire of some sort of self-serving reciprocation, we're instead serving the world through Jesus. And the world doesn't understand that, and quite frankly, probably doesn't like that sometimes. Now, don't get me wrong, we don't completely sever ties with our family. If, if our family needs us to be there in a dire situation, we're going to be there, right? If we're a father or mother to a child, we're not going to ignore them. We're going to provide for them. You know, Jesus wasn't stopping being a son. When he was dying on the cross, he says to John, hey, can you take care of my mother for me after I pass so she's got somebody to take care of her? It's just that we're so in tune with God and doing kingdom work that the world may not understand why we might choose a lifestyle that chases the kingdom of God rather than the world. And this is the cost of discipleship. Jesus is being quite clear about the expectation and the description here. I can only imagine the surprise of, 
of what people were thinking that day when they were hearing him teach and how high the cost of discipleship might have sounded to them. And I got a feeling that Jesus probably knew what people were thinking because for the remainder of the parable, he actually goes on and explains everything in detail more, but in a more pragmatic fashion. He says here, and now we're going to go back to our parable here. So this is verse 28. He says, Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Jesus here puts his teaching into a language that is more relatable. And as we saw in verse 25, large crowds were following him, right? So probably a lot of folks were saying to him, hey, I want to be your follower. And most likely, a lot of them probably didn't really understand what was involved in being a follower. And so Jesus probably got that hint. And so to set the record straight, he explains in a practical manner that we need to truly contemplate the cost of a large undertaking before beginning it. And just like today, if we're going to sign our names on a real estate agreement with the bank, we probably should know how much that mortgage costs on a monthly basis. Or if we're joining a sports team, we probably should know the daily or weekly practice commitments that are required in order to be a part of a sports team. It's like that tower that Jesus talks about here in verse 28. As a matter of fact, if we maybe take that analogy here and expand upon it and say if maybe you and me giving our lives to Christ is like building that tower, he's asking us here if we've got the material cost required to build this structure that we want to build. I mean, we've even drafted up these beautiful blueprints and we start showing them to everybody. We start showing them to Jesus, hey, I'm excited to show you this Jesus with this tower that I want to build. We start telling everybody about it, how we're going to have this new life and stake our reputation on it. And in that on-fire season that takes place shortly after we give our lives to Christ, we build this beautiful foundation for a tower, sturdy, strong, with precision and focus to detail. But things change, don't they? Life happens. And the fact is that in order for the tower to build, be built, but you have to build the tower. And when we go to build it, we might notice that our materials that we need in order to build it may not be there, and some folks might get discouraged, and so they wane a little bit. But a good sturdy tower is not built in one day or one week. It's built very gradually over a long period of time, brick by brick. The materials that are needed to build this kind of a tower, they're obtained through daily activities called spiritual disciplines. Things like prayer, fasting, small group, scripture reading, serving one another. Some folks may realize that they don't have these materials needed for their tower because they're not doing those daily spiritual disciplines. And so we don't want to have other people think that we're not involved in the Christian faith, right? Not in today's culture. We'd, we want to keep up appearances. So to get other people to think that we're still active in our faith, we like to take all these spiritual IOUs to God, right? You know, you know what I'm talking about when I say these spiritual IOUs? Yeah. Instead of actually earning those building materials through spiritual disciplines, we'll take out this IOU slip, and we'll hand it to God, and we'll say, someday I'm going to get back to you about God. I'm going to eventually pay that cost of discipleship in order to build that tower. They may say things like, someday soon I'm going to, I'm going to read my Bible when I get motivated. Someday soon I'm going to join that small group. Someday soon I'm going to pray with my spouse. And someday soon, I'm going to read through some scriptures with my children. You know, God, let me just, let me just write out another IOU slip to you, because you know I'm good for it, right? You know I'm going to get back to you. So instead of paying the spiritual cost of discipleship now, 
instead of praying over that person now, instead of reading that book of the Bible that I've been meaning to read now, instead of forgiving that person that wronged me now, I'll just wait a little bit before it feels good or it fits in my schedule. You know, it's okay that I'm not pursuing the Lord now because he knows I'm good for it, right? He knows I'll get back to him. But we forget that God's a little more clever than that. He knows that no matter how good we dress it up, a great blueprint, it's not a tower. A great foundation, as sturdy and strong as it is, it's not a tower. A tower that you may have built years ago but is now falling apart is no longer a tower. And if these things are not a tower, you're not being a disciple if the preparations aren't made, being made to pay the cost of discipleship that Jesus is outlining here. Now, don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that we're accruing any kind of debt here with these spiritual IOUs, right? It, we don't have a works-based salvation in Christianity, right? Because we're not saved by works. We're saved for works. We don't have to earn our, or maintain or retain some sort of status of salvation here. No, what I'm referring to here with these spiritual IOUs is this mental game that we play with ourselves, that it convinces us that the intent to do good works for the kingdom is somehow equivalent to actually doing the good work itself. It's just that we can't seem to be able to get around to doing these things we're called to do right now. You know, I've got good intention to do them someday, folks might say, but we justify in our minds that the inconvenience is too high or the price too large to be able to do something for the Lord, and the cost might seem so high, but I came today to tell you that the cost is actually so low, at least compared to what it would be if we were to constantly delay our discipleship with God. The only reason why folks might think that the cost is high is because it has to be addressed now. And addressing things now doesn't seem as good as saying that I'll address it later or tomorrow. By foregoing the cost of being a disciple of Christ now, you could actually be delaying the advancement of your spiritual life because those IOUs, they don't actually build anything. They're just flag markers that tell people around you what you'd like to build, or a good intention to build. It's sort of like those signs at a construction site that say future site of bank or grocery store. But until that building starts to take form and shape, who knows what's going to be there? I'm not necessarily talking about salvation here today, but although there may be some overlap here, because God has so much in store for you and me, and but until we take up the cross and follow him, he's not yet convinced that we truly understand the cost of what it is to be a disciple. You may be Christian, you may be saved, your eternal life may be secured, because being saved, that's a private matter. But being a disciple, that's when things go public. That's when things go public. In other words, salvation may be a blessing of being a Christian and acknowledging that Jesus died for your sins. That's all good. But there are different benefits and blessings available here on earth when we become an active Christ-following disciple that actively does the will of God. And, and I feel that I may hear some thoughts saying that, oh, it's okay, I don't need extra blessings here while I'm on earth. As long as I get to heaven, I'm good. As long as I have that base level of salvation, I'm I'm okay. I don't need to be out in the forefront all the time. But if, if I could just encourage you to read just another piece of scripture with me before you adopt that viewpoint. Let's take a look at Luke chapter 9. So a few, a few chapters before this. Luke chapter 9, verses 23 to 26. Jesus says, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. 
but whoever loses the life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. If we are publicly ashamed of God when called to be a disciple, then Jesus will have no choice but to be publicly ashamed of us. In other words, Jesus is connecting the dots here. This is a package deal. That salvation and discipleship are actually two sides of the same coin. And being a disciple means doing something in the now. Let's go back to our parable. So if you want to hop back to where we were in Luke 14 there. In verses 31 to 32, Jesus continues his parable and goes to describe a king waging his ability to win a battle in a war or not. So Jesus says in verse 31, Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he'll send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. The king in this example is being upfront and honest. He's coming to terms with his ability to pay the cost to achieve the goals in mind. Should the king have a good understanding that he and his troops cannot win the battle, he sends a delegation to ask for the terms of peace. But see, see what Jesus says here in this parable. He says if he cannot win, he says that the king will ask for the terms of peace while the other is still far away. In other words, the boy's not waiting until there's catapults and arrows and crossbows at his doorstep before he takes an action here. He pays the price of pride now so that the health and prosperity of those that are in his care can benefit and have the best options to thrive under. He's taken the seriousness of the situation now before it becomes a larger issue. He doesn't ask for the opposing king to wait another month before he comes to his doorstep. He doesn't sit there and think, oh, it's another month off. I'm okay. I don't got to do anything now today. Jesus is asking you and me if we're considering the price of being a disciple now so that those in our sphere of influence can properly benefit from the grace of God that can be extended through us. And Jesus drives it home and wraps it up by explaining that this can all be done through the transferring of our life and our possessions into the ownership of the Lord, which is where Jesus goes in the final verse of our parable today. Verse 33. Jesus says, in the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. One Bible translation that I read said to give up all your possessions. Another Bible translation I read said, who does not take leave of all that? Different forms of the same Greek root word used here in this piece of scripture that is used in other pieces of scripture attribute these belongings that we have almost to sort of a state of being. So if I could maybe offer one more interpretation of the text, maybe it could read possibly like that we take leave of the things that are being possessed by us. So in other words, we're not giving up things completely so that we're not taking care of anything anymore. Not at all. No, instead we're, we're being caretakers, groundskeepers. We're being good stewards of the lives and lifestyles that we've been blessed with here. You see, there's, and this is for my investors out there, whoever has an interest in investing, there exists this exchange rate between heaven and earth. 
this exchange rate that exists between earthly possessions and heavenly treasures. And it's important to note here that when I say earthly possessions, it's not necessarily just dollars or currencies for that matter. I mean, it's sort of different than that, right? When I'm talking about earthly possessions, I'm talking about anything, the collection of anything that we have here on this earth that cannot be taken with us to heaven. So that's pretty much everything. <laughs> and if nobody has told you this yet, this is a vital piece of market research here that I, I just, I don't want you guys to miss here. The exchange rate is in your favor to cash in your earthly possessions for the heavenly treasures because the payout is greater on the other side. Amen. You see, let, yeah. let me see if I can put this in another way. So I've got a friend, a very good friend of mine, brother in Christ, who got married earlier this year. He lives down in Texas, so I went down to Texas to stand up in the wedding. And as crazy hot as it was, it was a wonderful time. I had the opportunity to stay at his place, and it was a beautiful home. And I said that to him, and, he, and he, in our conversation, he casually mentioned the price he paid for it. And I was extremely surprised, because I'm of the belief and opinion that if we were to take his house and put it here in Michigan, I believe it would be worth about $100,000 more. So in, in other words, his purchasing power for his home that he had and the dollars that he had was able to get him more house down in Texas than if he were to try and purchase that same house in a different part of the country. Now, I'm not saying that we all should move down to Texas. <laughs> Unless you love that heat. God bless you if you do. But what I'm trying to say here is that what you have been blessed with here is actually worth more if you simply just move it to another realm. If you take the money, the house, the job, the everything that you've been blessed with, and just simply transfer the ownership of those items to God, to Jesus, for the use of the kingdom of God, you're going to find yourself becoming exceedingly wealthy beyond imagination. Now, I, I don't mean financially wealthy when I say that, exceedingly wealthy. I'm talking about exceedingly wealthy in the sense of heavenly treasures, the kind of stuff that doesn't rust or rot, that cannot be taken away, that cannot be lost. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 21, Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moss and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moss and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Again, this is not getting rid of things entirely. This is instead being good stewards of what we have by utilizing it for the purpose of the kingdom of God. So when Jesus says your possessions, he means all of it. So if you open up your calendar, your home, your money, your giftings, if you just simply transfer them to be used by the kingdom, which has a high need for what you have to offer, your life will become more full, more abundant, more filled with peace than you could have ever really possibly imagined. And I'm confident that if we were to invite a few folks up here today and ask for them to share a similar story of them, if they gave their lives to Christ, I believe that they would say very sa the same things as well. There are some folks that are attending today who are at different stages in their faith walk. Some individuals here may have drafted up those blueprints for that tower and never really committed to it and started their construction. Some folks might have built their foundation, but may not have revisited their construction site since. Some here may have built a tower years ago and it was beautiful and strong then, but over the years they hadn't kept up on it. So all the, the, the life storms have just battered against it, and the evil one has vandalized it constantly. And so the, the integrity and health of the structure is not what it used to be. 
Or there may be some individuals here today who may never have even considered drafting up a blueprint until today. You may, it may have been years since you've been in a church, and today's your first time back in a church in a while. And I don't think it's a mistake that you're here today. And today, this may be your first time hearing the call of discipleship by Jesus Christ, and you want to act on that today. And for each of these cases, I thank the Lord for everybody that's here. At the close of our time today, we'd like to invite everyone into a moment of prayer. And corporately speaking, we're going to take some time to be with the Lord while the worship team comes back up and leads us once more in a final song. Jesus Christ sacrificed himself for your sins and for my sins. And because of this astounding act of grace, astounding act of grace, he shows that he made the first step to show us what it means to live a life of sacrifice for others. It's a very extremely joy-filled and extremely fulfilling lifestyle. And Jesus has called each and every one of us to begin a life of discipleship. Your life of discipleship and the things that God is calling you to might look completely different than the life of discipleship of the person sitting next to you, and that's okay. Or maybe the Lord has only given you hints of information and you're still waiting for more information and and waiting on the Lord is okay too. But I bet he's probably given you enough information to do a little something today. Or the Lord might be driving your heart toward repenting of a certain activity that is significantly impeding your path of discipleship. So in other words, your path of discipleship today is to clear your path of the stumbling block that the evil one has laid at your feet. In your prayer time today, if you feel that pull from the Holy Spirit to make your next step toward discipleship today, I just want to encourage you, don't don't wait another day. Act on that today. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for this time that we have had today as a church. Thank you so much for your blessings that you give us on a daily basis, the houses that we live in, the cars that we drive, the jobs that we have, the food that we eat, everything that you have given to us. All good things come from you, the giver of lights. We just want to take a moment to just acknowledge your amazing grace, your power, your glory in something as big as this to take care of each and every one of us. Our time with you is sacred, and we want to celebrate that with our presence here today. We want to begin our path of discipleship. We ask eagerly for direction and guidance and assurance and encouragement from the Holy Spirit as we pursue our path of discipleship for you, God. We may not know what all the details might be, but we want to trust you. Trust you in what you will have us do that the path is good, that the steps are indeed tried and true by you because you have walked before us. We ask for for protection from the evil one who may want to lay more stumbling blocks at our feet on this path of discipleship that you have called us to. We know that you have the power to cast out the evil one at just mentioning the sound of your name. He flees in terror. Lord, we are encouraged and humbled that you have called us. We're so honored to be a part of your kingdom. We know that you will do your will with or without us, Lord, but we are so honored that you have actually chosen us to be a part of your will, and we want and have a true desire to respond and be a part of your will and your grace. Thank you for all that you do for us. 
In your son's name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the Community Christian Church Podcast. For more messages like this and other resources, visit us online at cccsterling.org.